Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Moves with Coombs podcast, helping you re-educate and re-inspire your relationship with movement by giving you insight on some powerful ideas around health and fitness that aren't typically part of the mainstream conversation. I'm your host, Griffin Coombs, movement and breathing coach. I help people move better and breathe better by building strength, fluidity, control, and awareness of their bodies in ways that ultimately decrease pain and increase connection to the self. As someone deeply entrenched in all things wellness, I'm here to share insights gained on a long and ever-evolving journey toward well-being. In this initial episode of New Season 3, we're talking simply about six things that I have changed my mind on since getting into the world of fitness almost 15 years ago. I won't get much more into that in the intro, so sit back and enjoy this episode. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Hey everybody, welcome back to an impromptu recording of a brand new season of the Moves with Coombs podcast with me, your host, Griffin Coombs. I've been inspired by the other podcast I'm working on, which I'll plug at the end of this, and thought that there are a lot of things that need to be talked about in terms of the evolution of the industry of fitness and movement and my evolution as a practitioner and a coach and just overall aficionado of movement. So This episode, I am going to go over six things that I have changed my mind about since I first started coaching and or practicing movement and sort of, quote unquote, being into fitness uh, myself. So let's get right into it. Number one, the thing that I've changed my mind about is that only heavy compound lifts are worth doing for strength training. I used to be all about power lifting, Olympic lifting, and some strongman training too I experimented with years and years ago. But it doesn't really matter the type of lift. My point is that I used to think that it's not worth it if you're not training within that maximal strength rep range. Now, the rep range, for those of you who are kind of new to these concepts, the rep range just means what is how many reps can you do before failure? And so when we're talking about a rep range, like a one to three rep range would be the weight is so heavy that you can only possibly do between one and three repetitions. I used to think that if you could do more than five, the weight was too light. And you needed to make, you needed to either be maxing out or you needed to be lifting, you know, maxing out at five reps uh, at the very, at the very most. And I've really changed my stance on this. And in fact, you know, the, the lifts that you really do those for are mostly full body or near full body compound movements like powerlifting and Olympic lifting. And, but, so I don't even recommend doing most powerlifting or Olympic lifting at all for reasons that you will hear if you listen to an upcoming episode of my other podcast, Forging Fluidity, with my co-host Savannah Wishart. We're going to talk all about the paradigm shift that's happening in movement and how the fringe biomechanic uh, school of thought is gaining traction. And I think that's a very positive thing. And the old way of looking at 
fitness and strength training needs um, some revision. But I'm not going to go too deep into that or as to why I don't even do deadlifts or heavy squats or anything like that anymore. But it's just about the rep range. There are some movements that, you know, let's say you're injured or let's say you, you're just, you're looking to get a similar stimulus in your legs, let's just say, as you would in a squat. Okay. I'm being very, very basic here. I'm not going to go into specific muscle groups or anything like that, but let's just say that you want to get a stimulus. You're doing leg day, right? And normally you would do squats, but for whatever reason, maybe you have back problems. You can't put your back under the load of a heavy barbell or whatever it is. And so instead you opt for a machine. Well, the, the big, the big reason or one of the big reasons that those heavy, heavy lifts are so taxing and that people train them to, um, to build maximal strength, meaning between about one to three reps or one to five reps, depending on who you're talking about or who you're talking to is that they're because they're full body and they require so much stability of the entire body, they are super taxing on the nervous system. And so if you're going to have to isolate a muscle or isolate a group of muscles because you still want the stimulus, but you can't, for whatever reason, do those compound lifts, uh, then it's completely okay and advisable even to use a machine or to use, to, to use something else, to use an alternative that's not going to be so taxing on the entire body, but is still going to provide that, that stimulus to the muscle. That stimulus is, it's, it's not, I don't think there's as much uh, weight to it, no pun intended, hey. no weight, not as much weight to it as, uh, as people give it when it, you know, the bodybuilding types of just like, I just want to grow the muscle. I just want to give it a stimulus so that it, you know, that it gets bigger or whatever. But I do think that, uh, that building strength and maintaining muscle has clear correlations to good health and longevity. And so if you can't stimulate the, that muscle or muscle group by doing a heavy, heavy compound lift, then do something else. Um, and you know, muscle size is correlated to longevity and you can do, think, uh, Andy Galpin, he's a Stanford researcher and all this stuff. One of the leading voices on this topic, the last thing that I heard him write about, you can't hear someone write, can you? I heard him talk about, I think on a podcast somewhere is that you up to 30 repetitions, a rep range of up to 30 is still in the hypertrophy range, hypertrophy meaning muscle growth. And you've not yet gone into what we would call muscular endurance until after 30 repetitions. So you have a lot of wiggle room to play with 10 reps, 15 reps, even 20 in your exercise. You don't have to be training everything, a weight so heavy that you can only bust out five. Okay. So that's number one. Number one is I no longer believe that only heavy compound weightlifting is worth doing. Number two, the paleo diet or the primal diet. Now I am the type that responds pretty well to a very low carb, uh, nutrition plan, if you will. Not everybody does. I used to be super short-sighted and used to think that grains are terrible. Nobody should eat grains and all of the kind of ancestral arguments around not eating grains because they weren't part of the, the 
Paleolithic smorgasbord of options for eating. We had not, the advent of agriculture had not happened. And that the idea that our bodies have, uh, have not, in terms of evolution, our bodies are not adapted past the Paleolithic era. And so fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, meats, uh, leaves, things that, uh, that could be foraged or hunted. And that's kind of the very basic menu when it comes to the paleo uh, community's views on nutrition. And one of the great things about that is that when you're eating those things, it's much harder to eat processed, um, more sort of toxic foods. Because just by virtue of if you're choosing to eliminate grains and certain starches and things like that, just your options for things that are packaged and are preserved with a lot of toxic chemicals, those options just go down. So sort of by proxy of choosing your types of foods, you're also probably less toxic if you're a strict paleo person. But as over the years, as I looked more into to health coaching and functional medicine and naturopathy and just uh, the evolution of the wellness community, it's, it's pretty clear to me that low carb can harm a lot of people, especially women, especially people with propensity for thyroid dysfunction and things like that. Carbohydrate is necessary. The brain feeds on carbohydrate and the whole, the, the whole keto movement is like, well, the body will just make ketones and then the brain can use those. And that, that's fine too. There's a benefit to once in a while going into ketosis. But to, to cut all grains is extreme for most people. Um, and some people need it. That's fine. I do recommend staying away from processed grains. And I think that wheat um, especially can give people more problems than they realize. But when if you're super low carb or you're a kind of a mix of like paleo, keto, and you're avoiding things completely like sweet potatoes... Uh, even rice, you know, all of these things are, if you watch your glycemic load, which means how much a certain food raises your blood sugar, if you're, if you're conscious of that and you're really in tune with your body, as they say, you're, it's, it's pretty easy if you have that presence of mind to kind of gauge and to learn what's too much rice for you, you know, or what's too much sweet potato, or what's too much yucca or whatever kind of starchy vegetable you're thinking of. And that you don't need to cut all of these, uh, all of these things completely. Another reason being that there's growing research around the gut microbiome and specifically on how the fiber that we eat from plants, including starchy vegetables, is the primary source of food for the good gut bacteria that we want to flourish in our system to sort of rebalance um, literally everything. I mean, the gut is related to absolutely every function in our body, uh, save maybe, I don't know, a teeny tiny minuscule percentage, but I, I'm, not a, I'm not a biologist, doctor, or researcher in that field, so I can't give you exact numbers, but there's a great book called 10% Human, um, if you're interested, um, I already forget who the author is, but she is a credentialed biologist and that was written a while ago. It's 2022 as I'm recording this. And some of the case studies are 
pretty remarkable in terms of how much our bacteria affects our and, and our gut specifically affects our overall health. And so to avoid certain foods um, completely, to go super extreme, like some paleo enthusiasts tend to do, it could be not so beneficial for the gut microbiome. Again, some people are better suited for lower carb or kind of a paleo uh, nutritional approach. I think my body is one of those, although I do eat many more carbs than I used to when I was paleo and I, I am moving and feeling better than I ever was back then. But there are some people who just can't deal at all and it's not their fault and it's not, you know, there are... There are reasons, plenty of reasons why people can't and don't do super low carb or no grains. All right, that's that. On to number three. This is a postural one. Shoulders down and back. You might have heard this one if you've ever been trained by a trainer, if you've ever watched videos on how to do, I don't know, any upper body workout, uh, bench press, push-ups, pull-ups, rows. They'll always say, kind of lift your shoulder blades up to like give you a, a set reference point and then squeeze them back and then pull them down. So like you want to end up in these shoulders down and back position. That is so wrong. It is so incredibly wrong. And I was doing it for so long that I am still correcting some shoulder dysfunction from believing that I needed to walk that way, stand that way, push up that way, pull up that way. Uh, that Now, I think that it's good natured. The advice is good natured. It's trying to stop people from being overly rounded and hunched over with the shoulders shrugged up too much because that's kind of a side effect of seated posture for long periods of time. And that's certainly an epidemic for, uh, for the Western world, but you can go way too far in the other direction and you're not gaining any access to the stabilizing muscles above or in front of the shoulder. So if you are squeezing shoulder blades down and back, your, your default position for your shoulder for not just the shoulder blade, but your default position for the glenohumeral joint, which is basically where the the arm, the humerus, the upper arm bone, meets the the socket of the the uh, clavicle and the rib cage, right? So that's called the, the glenohumeral joint or the GH joint, and the position of that joint becomes too far back and too far down, and so it's no longer stable because it's not there's nothing holding it from the front or the top. So we have to learn how to, and nobody likes being told that they have to take a balanced approach to anything. I get it. I'm one of them too, because it's way easy to just go to extremes because then you don't have to think, you don't have to monitor, you don't have to stay present. If it's always this thing, shoulders always down and back, always stand up straight, right? Chest up, whatever, bring your shoulders back. That's way oversimplified, but it's convenient. And we like things that are convenient. But if you want a healthy shoulder for normal standing, sitting, walking posture, and especially while you're moving and you're manipulating weight or you're running or whatever it is, uh, you, you need a balanced, stable shoulder from all sides. And so we have to learn how to reintegrate our upper trapezius muscles, which, uh, which are the ones that kind of lift the shoulders, the ones that get tight when we shrug up all the time. We have to re-engage those in a balanced way. 
We have to re-engage the pecs, the chest muscles as shoulder stabilizers too, with the lats, which are those huge muscles that go from our armpit all the way across our back. Those are supposed to be stabilizers for the shoulder. And all we do, uh, or I shouldn't say all we do, but those of us who are kind of deep in the mainstream fitness world, over-engage those lats, over-engage the back muscles that squeeze shoulder, that retract shoulder blades and are completely disconnected from the pecs, the, the upper trapezius. And we're also, even though the lats are over-engaged, they're, they're under-engaged as proper stabilizers because they're all supposed to work together. Uh, and, and the same thing, even if you train your pecs, like if you, you know, bench press a lot or do a lot of push-ups or whatever, but if your pecs don't know how to function as stabilizers in a kind of default, correct shoulder position, then your pecs aren't really doing their job very well. So that's number three, shoulders down and back, no longer agree with over my journey, uh, in fitness. And I mean, believe me, my shoulders were overly retracted and depressed for a really long time and still are if I'm not working on them. Halfway there. Number four, that high intensity interval training is the only cardio worth doing. So dumb. I feel so stupid that I was ever among this school of thought, but if you are among the school of thought, never fear. I'm going to correct course for you or hope that you correct course. And I'm not calling you stupid, by the way. I just, you know, have high standards for myself. And um, when I think about it a little more, I'm proud because, you know, here we are. This is growth, right? So I used to think, and again, this is, you know, I really started getting into this around 2008, 2009, 2010. That, that era of paleo becoming really popular and the kind of primal movement of, you know, all you need to do is high intensity workouts once in a while and like lift really heavy compound lifts because that's what our ancestors would have done, you know, to sprint and take down a lion, um, but not all the time. And then, you know, to pick up heavy things for whatever reason, that part I am still not clear as to why our ancestors were picking up the heaviest things they could and then just dropping them down. But again, that's another, that's for another episode. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of, uh, walking, which that also took the, took a backseat to the other stuff. Cause it's not sexy, like weightlifting and sprinting and stuff like that. But there was this, um, this movement within the paleo primal fitness culture of just like against chronic cardio, quote unquote, where yes, the, the argument was pretty sound and it went something like if you are running all the time or cycling all the time, then you are training your body to crave sugar because you need carbohydrate to fuel that energy system that like zone three, zone four um, almost anaerobic, but not quite your VO two max threshold like that, that high intensity chronic cardio craves carbohydrate for immediate energy. And so you're not adapting your body to burn body fat as a source of fuel, slow, steady energy. And so you get into this vicious cycle of craving carbohydrate, eating carbohydrate, burning that carbohydrate through your running or cycling or whatever 
and then you rinse and repeat, and that's totally fine. And but I do think that there, I mean, there's especially a ton of research now on the benefits of zone two cardio, which is about 60 to 70% of your max heart rate. And it's kind of like as, as lightly as you can be exercising, but still know that you're exercising. So it's not just a leisurely walk that would be zone one, but zone two might be a hike for most people or like a, a power walk or, you know, a walk up a hill, something like that where that type of cardio is correlated to longevity, has massive effects, positive effects on heart health, and improves conditioning for higher intensity things, which is really, really cool. And so is there a place for, you know, a Tabata, which is, you know, 20 seconds of super high intensity with 10 seconds rest repeated for eight rounds, a total of four minutes? Um, Yes. Is there a place for burpees? Yes. A lot of kind of enlightened fitness gurus think that burpees are just absolutely pointless. They're not pointless at all. You can explosively and properly, safely and athletically get down into the prone position and back up. That's a good skill to have. People just train them like floppy idiots sometimes. And I think that's what these people have a problem with. Fair enough. But, I mean, if you're just worried about work capacity, burpees are great. And you should worry about work capacity sometimes, you know, like for time or for reps. How many can I do in a minute? Or how, how much time is it going to take me to do 100 burpees? Those workouts are valid, but they're not the only thing. And I used to be one of those people where it's like, if it's not short but super intense and I just feel like collapsing on the floor in a pool of my own sweat. If I don't feel that way, it wasn't worth cardio. Um, the other thing is that running is completely, I mean, moving forward. Some people argue that it's more about humans are made to walk more than run, or they're made to carry things more than that. Whatever you think, like in terms of hair splitting details, humans have evolved to move forward in space. They haven't evolved to pick up heavy things. They haven't evolved to play niche sports. We can still do those things and they can still be good for you in certain ways. But the reason that the human body, musculoskeletally speaking, is the way it is, is to move forward on two feet. There's really no argument against that. And if you have one, I'd love to hear it. And so we have to start looking at doing those things in order to optimize how our body works for us and how we feel in our body. So if we're optimizing for walking, carrying things and running, then we're probably going to feel better because that's what our body is supposed to be doing. And so to just not run or to say running is bad for you for whatever reason, or it's not worth it, or you don't need to do it. It's, it's backwards. And so I no longer believe that running is worthless and you should just do high intensity workouts. Okay. Number five, I used to have a goal of being yogi flexible. And that used to be a hallmark of mobility, that image of the person doing the full backbend or the, you know, the handstand with their they're almost bent over, like uh, full global extension and their feet touching the ground, or full splits, forward folds, um, those types of things, or a dancer holding their foot up in the air, like a straight vertical leg. Um, 
all of those things, I used to think that's something to aspire to, and it's just not true. Again, looking at movement and looking at all types of training, at strength, looking at power, looking at elasticity and explosiveness, and mobility and flexibility no differently. We're looking at them through the lens of what are we optimizing for, what is the human body supposed to do, and how much of these attributes do I need in order to move better in that way and to be able to feel better in my body because of that. And so I'm not a very naturally flexible person. And I, you know, I've had a history of low back injury and figuring all that stuff out and all of the stretchy yoga, you know, I'm a yoga certified yoga instructor. Um, I don't do much mainstream yoga. I certainly don't teach it. Uh, and they can just cause more problems than they solve. It's not really a measured approach. It's just kind of like, you know, open up the front body and it's like, okay, what part of the front body are you talking about? And this is just, you know, I'm just giving examples, but it's, it's no measure of a pain-free functional body to be able to do full back bends or forward folds or splits. It's cool. And if you've been training it for a long time and it benefits whatever you love to do, like if you're a dancer, a gymnast, a martial artist, um, a kind of a parkour or like calisthenics person that does a lot of end range stuff and flips and splits, that's great. That's super cool. But where people, I'm talking about, I used to think that that was something to aspire to just for health in my body, just for well-being in my joints and my tissues. And it's not the case. We want a certain amount of flexibility, but that, that flexibility, I've done an, an episode on fascia before, that flexibility has to be within the context of what the body, like what's the other half of the body doing? If I'm too flexible in one joint or one piece of tissue, I'm not going to be able to elastically spring back from that position and be able to do the f- whatever function I'm trying to do. And it's not a functional part of being a human to sit on the ground in a split. Again, it can be cool. It can be part of something that you love to do. But in terms of what the human body has evolved for and is supposed to be optimized for, there is no function there. So it, it And now that I train a different way, this is just anecdotal, but I, I feel better. I'm, I'm just better. I'm a better mover and I'm in less pain than I've ever been by taking a new approach and thinking outside the box of, wow, I need to be more flexible and look like these yogis. So something to consider. Okay. And the last thing that I don't agree with, and I'm going to get some hate for this, but I just don't care, uh, is that body fat is irrelevant when it comes to health. I used to be one of those people that's like, well, you know, some people are just, uh, they're just overweight, but they're like totally healthy, you know, or they're fit, but they're just a little heavier. They're just big boned. Now, if we're talking about, here's my disclaimer. Okay. If we're talking about some extra pounds of subcutaneous fat tissue, I totally agree. Totally fine. It doesn't matter. Like who cares if you're 15% body fat versus 12, or if you're under 10%, like all that subcutaneous fat tissue, meaning 
the stuff that's directly under the skin, right? So if you get a little flab, like we all do, unless you're a fitness model who probably lives a miserable life because you're restricted in every single way, um, that might not be true. Maybe your life isn't miserable. Maybe you love being a fitness model. Sorry if you're listening and you're a fitness model. Um, But, I mean, most normal people, like, we all have some subcutaneous fatty tissue. And however much you have of that, does it doesn't matter to me. And I don't think it matters to your health at all. That's pretty clear. But when we're talking about visceral fat, which is the stuff around the organs, and people who are getting into severe overweight or obese mode... It's to say that that's not linked to your health is absurd. And I understand the intent of body positivity and it's, it needs to be separated from health because body positivity is, in my opinion, something to strive for. In other words, we shouldn't be judging people because of their bodies, but that is a separate conversation from how healthy you are. So in other words, to tell somebody that that they're perfectly healthy, but they're morbidly obese is not the same as telling them you're morbidly obese, but you're absolutely deserving of love and respect regardless. I don't know if you would tell them directly either of those things, unless they're a close friend, but I'm saying how you, how you feel toward them, right? So I think that we need to feel towards people that they are they are worthy. They are absolutely as respectable and uh, as human, no matter what your weight or your fitness or your health situation. So that's conversation one. Conversation two is we have to recognize as a society that you are in danger of a lot of, um, of, of all cause mortality if you are severely overweight. So let's not conflate the two. And let's not say, oh yeah, you can be obese and perfectly healthy. That's not the same as being worthy. Yes, you are still worthy. Yes, you are respectable. Yes, nobody should judge or comment on your weight. It's none of your business. However, it doesn't mean you're healthy. And there, I mean, there are rare cases of what's called metabolically healthy obesity. But those those who stay obese over, I forget the, the number of years, like five years after being diagnosed with metabolically healthy obesity, it turns into metabolically unhealthy obesity. So there really aren't any cases longitudinally, long-term, where people just can stay obese and they're completely metabolically healthy. So, and I used to kind of subscribe to, yeah, well, that's no indicator of your health at all. You can be fit and healthy and great, but severely overweight. No, no, you can't. And, um, and I'm not saying this to be polarizing or to be mean, but because there's, there's a need to help people be healthier and live longer, happier lives. That's something to aspire to, I believe. When it gets down to just kind of um, miscellaneous amounts of subcutaneous fat, that's when the conversation ends. And no, it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what, how, how much fat you have on your body. What matters is how you're moving, how you're feeling, that you're enjoying your life. Um, so I just want to be clear on that. All right, we're just over the 30-minute mark, so I'm going to wrap it up here. Thanks for joining me if you're listening to this impromptu episode that I just decided to record. There may be more in season three, and if there's something that you would like to hear me talk about in the world of health, wellness, fitness, longevity, movement, 
um, anything of that nature, I would love to hear from you. I am moves underscore with underscore Coombs on Instagram or moveswithcoombs at gmail.com. Looking forward to hearing from you and have a fantastic day. Moves with Coombs. Coming at you.